Good morning, everybody. Good to see you guys here, and glad we can be together today to worship together. And as Dylan said, my name is Dan, and I'm the uh, lead pastor here. And thankful we can worship the Lord through song and through opening His Word. If you do have a Bible with you, please open to uh, John chapter 17. <clears throat> if you don't have a Bible, we'll, we'll put it on the screen in a few minutes. Uh, but we'll be in John 17, verses 20 to 23. And I want to start just by reading some other passages from the Old Testament and the New Testament as we... Uh, we're kind of in the middle of Jesus' prayer here for his disciples at the Last Supper. And these verses all kind of gelled together. It says in, um, in Psalm 133, 1, God tells us through David, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Later on in God's word, he tells us through Paul in Ephesians 4, 1 to 3, Therefore I, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called Christians. I added that part. So he's talking to. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, in the bond of peace. And in God's word, he tells us through Peter, in 1 Peter 3, 8, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. So clearly, God wants his people to be united. It's very important to him. And in the Bible, God applauds Christians who are united uh, he urges Christians to maintain their unity, and he commands Christians to pursue unity if there isn't unity. And now at the Last Supper, God the Son, Jesus, prays for it. He prays for the unity of his church. And the fact that he prayed this during his final hours reinforces the very fact that this is really important to God. This is how he chose to use some of his final words so uh, we'll be in John 17, 20 to 23. Let me read Jesus' prayer here. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, thank you for giving us your word today, and we, we just ask today that your prayer for our unity would be realized. That your prayer for our unity would be realized in our individual lives, in the life of our church family here at Cedar Home, and in the life of the universal church of all believers, God. Uh, we thank you so much, God, for dying for us so that this might be realized, so that we might become one with you and one with one another. 
And we just ask that you would please give us humble hearts. Give us humble minds that desire this, that desire your desires to dwell in unity with one another. Please protect us now from the evil one and please work powerfully now in our midst. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So let's start by looking at verse 20 here, which Jesus prays, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So Jesus began his prayer by praying specifically for his disciples who were with him at the time, but now he expands his prayer and he prays for all of his future disciples, every person who would ever trust in him for eternal life. And what's happening in this passage is that Jesus, God the Son, is praying to God the Father for you, if you're a believer. God is praying to God for you. He's praying to God for his church, which includes this local church, Cedar Home Baptist Church. And in this verse, Jesus describes those of us who are his followers in two ways. First, he says that we believe in him. And that means that we believe that Jesus is who he says he is, and we believe uh, that he is for us everything that he says he is for us, okay? And then second, Jesus says that Christians will believe in him through what? Their word, That's the way we will hear about this, through the word, the message of the disciples, and the word of the disciples that we must believe about Jesus is what we call the gospel or good news of Jesus. And it's the exact same message that Jesus and the disciples preached about 2,000 years ago, and it has not changed. You hear that? So don't ever listen to anyone who says that the gospel must progress, that the gospel is primitive. It must be updated to accommodate the needs of modern man. Okay. The true gospel of Jesus does not change. It is the same gospel we preach here at Cedar Home because this is why the greatest problems facing you and me and everybody on this earth have not changed, hasn't, they haven't changed throughout all the centuries. And the solution to those problems hasn't changed either. If you, if you want a really short definition of the good news of Jesus, mark this passage in your Bible. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 4. The Apostle Paul summarizes it. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, in accordance with the scriptures, okay? So this is the message that you must believe to have eternal life, that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ, that he was the Savior sent from God to die for sin in our place, just as the Old Testament prophets prophesied that he would, okay? And after dying, this Jesus was buried And after three days, he was raised from the dead on the third day by the power of God, just as he said he would be. And Jesus tells us, you need this power, this salvation in your life, okay? I came to do this for you because I love you. 
And so he says, turn from your sin. Turn away from all the things that you've been chasing in this world that you think will satisfy you and truly make you happy in this life and after this life, because it won't. Instead, Jesus says, I want you to confess your sins to me. Look to me for forgiveness, and I will forgive you. Look to me for eternal life, and I will give you eternal life because I purchased it for you when I died on the cross. And by God's grace alone, there's nothing we do to earn his love. When we trust in Jesus, he rescues us. He rescues us from Satan and sin and hell and eternal death. And Jesus gives us eternal friendship with God that starts now and lasts forever. This friendship that says, God's, through which God says, come boldly to me. You're in the throne room now. The veil has been removed between us because of Jesus. And this friendship with God is what we were created for, and it's the only thing that can truly satisfy our hearts and our souls. This is the gospel of the disciples. This is the word described in verse 20, through which God calls his children to him and saves them. And it hasn't changed, and it never will. This gospel of Jesus is the message that unites Jesus' disciples, who he prays for here in John 17, 20 to 23. Now, as we move on and we look at what Jesus prays for us specifically, you'll notice that in this passage we just read, he interweaves a lot. He interweaves a lot of information, his purposes, the outcomes, uh, and so it's going to take a little while to unpack all this. In the next coming weeks, my plan is to help us understand what Jesus is praying for here as we ask four big questions about his prayer. First of all, what is this Christian unity or oneness that Jesus prays for? And second, why should we eagerly pursue Christian unity? Eagerly is the word God says this, pursue this. Three, what are the results of Christian unity? And fourth, how can I pursue it? How can I pursue Christian unity? Today we're going to tackle part of the first question, okay? Which is, why is this Christian unity, or sorry, what is this Christian unity or oneness that Jesus is talking about, that he's praying for? Well, in verses 20 to 21, Jesus asked the Father that all of his disciples may be one. And the state of being one is what we call unity, right? Oneness, unity. And so for, in order for us to understand what exactly it is that Jesus wants for us, what exactly we Christians are shooting for, we've got to define this. We have to understand what this is, what Christian unity is. And what is this unity of Christians that Jesus prays for? Well, as I thought about it, I think what we'll do is, I think it's going to be most helpful for us to first describe what Christian unity is not. Okay? So in order to figure out what we are shooting for, it's going to help us to identify what we aren't shooting for. So what is the opposite of Christian unity? When you think of what is the opposite of unity, disunity, right? Disunity among Christians, division among Christians, disharmony among Christians, dissension among Christians. 
which is disagreement that leads to arguments and division. A lot of D words the Bible uses, right? Division, disharmony, dissension. All of these words describe disunity, which is the opposite of Christian unity. So today, disunity is the first of four things that we're going to talk about that describes what Christian unity is not. Because God wants so much for this, his church, his people to act as one, he, he reiterates this, he stresses this over and over again in scripture that he, he will not put up with disunity among his people. And he says that there are serious consequences for those that would try to divide his people. In Proverbs six nineteen, we see God has a list of six things that he hates, seven that are an abomination to him, and one of those is the person who sows discord among brothers. Okay? God says that person is an abomination to him. In Galatians 5, 19 to 20, Paul says that disunity is on par with the other works of the flesh like witchcraft and jealousy and idolatry. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and the list goes on. 1 Timothy 6.4 describes the ungodly person who in, he's talking in this context as about false prophets, but also generally describing ungodly people. He says, the ungodly person is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, and evil suspicions. So what Paul's saying here is, if you are conceited, if you have a false sense of self-importance, then you're in trouble. If you are unteachable, meaning that no matter how many godly people try to help you or warn you, about your sinful patterns in your life, and you never change and you never repent, you are in trouble, and at the same time, you're a danger to the church, okay? The verse says that the ungodly person has an unhealthy craving for controversy. You could say they thrive on conflict. They have an unhealthy craving for quarrels about words. This person loves to argue. They love to be in a conflict, they seem to always have drama in his or her life that he or she is likely the cause of. If it, and so this is what he's saying. If you want to quarrel with other people, if you want to quarrel with other Christians about words and semantics and other things like that because you like to quarrel, then the best thing you can do is to stop that or to leave the church until you do. That's what Paul's saying because you're a danger to the church. He says here that this person's conceited behavior poisons other people in the church. This person produces in the body envy among people, dissension among people, slander among people, 
and evil suspicions. So that means he causes people to suspect that something evil is going on in the lives of other Christians or among the leaders of the church. And as often is the case, this ungodly person has absolutely zero grounds for his suspicions other than the gossip he's heard or other than the envy that's in his or her own heart because people aren't giving him the attention and power that he or she deserves in his or her own mind. It feels ugly to even talk about this stuff, but we have to because it's real. It's a real threat to our Christian unity, and because God tells us over and over again, this is the kind of behavior we want to look out for in the body and stand firm against. We can't allow it. Another passage that warns against disunity is, is Titus 3.9, which instructs God's people to avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, He is self-condemned. So there are controversies that Christians get entangled in and worked worked up about that God considers foolish. Sorry, I'm messing with the mic a little. Okay? These sorts of controversies could be something as simple as the color of the paint on the walls. And these things are traps of the devil uh, to try to get Christians to scrap with one another, okay? As my friend Bruce Kidding uses that I stole from him. Um, And all too often, we take the bait and that's exactly what happens. Here God says that these controversies are unprofitable for the church. They're worthless for God's people. And then in verse 10, God tells Christians how to deal with the person in the church who stirs up division among other Christians. He says, warn them twice to stop it. And if they don't stop it, have nothing to do with them. And in verse 11, God says that the reasons you should cut off your relationship with that person is because he or she is warped, sinful, and self-condemned. So you are putting yourself in danger if you continue to be around that person. These are descriptions of the disunity that Jesus does not want for his people. And God tells us to stay away from these types of actions. We have to guard ourselves when we, against this type of stuff when we see it in our own lives. God tells us to repent if we're guilty of doing these things. And he tells us to stay away from those who refuse to repent from this type of behavior. This is Jesus' bride. You do not mess with Jesus' bride. He loves his bride. And he protects the bride. And so the first thing that Christian unity is not is disunity. Now the second thing that Christian unity is not is ungodly unity. Okay. Unity in and of itself is not Jesus' desire or prayer for the church. If that were the case, then Jesus wouldn't care what we believed or what we did just as long as we were unified about it. And sadly, throughout the history of the church, Christians and Self-proclaimed Christians and churches have united around many ungodly causes and beliefs. Many Christians and churches today 
are uniting around the belief that 21st, uh, 21st century Christians should do away with the definitions of sexual sin written in the Bible that have guided the church for 2,000 years, that, they, that our world has changed, they say. And so Christians must change too. But this is not the type of unity God wants us to rally around. Okay? In the mid-20th century, there was a widespread movement among some Christian scholars and churches and seminaries to demythologize the Bible meaning that those parts of the Bible that tell of miraculous or supernatural events must surely be make believe because science has told us such things are impossible. And so they said we must change the Bible in order to make Jesus relevant. And this is an age of science. We must demythologize the Bible, remove the man-made myths of the Bible. And this same rationale is taught in most secular universities today still and many liberal Christian universities. And obviously, this is not the type of unity Jesus wants for us. And over the past two centuries in our country, many American Christians, self-proclaimed Christians and churches united over racial segregation and slavery. But racial segregation and slavery are not what God desires. And to this day, our society and our churches are still recovering from the sinful unity of many of those who claim the name of Christ. And to make it clear, we Christians do not value and promote racial harmony because we want to be relevant to the 21st century world. We value and promote racial harmony because the Bible values and promotes racial harmony. Okay? And so, those are a few examples of what ungodly unity can look like in the church. And this is definitely not the kind of unity Jesus was praying for. In addition to disunity and ungodly unity, the third thing that Christian unity is not is institutional unity. Okay. Institutional unity is the belief that there is only one true denomination, there's only one true branch of Christianity. If you're not part of that branch of Christianity, then you're not truly united to other Christians or to Christ. If you've ever had a conversation with a Roman Catholic, and I have many Roman Catholic friends who I love dearly, but this is what they believe. If, if you've ever uh, talked to them and they're trying to convert you, you've probably heard this argument that the argument is that Jesus um, ordained the, his disciple Peter as the first pope. And at the end of uh, Peter's ministry, he passed on his power as the pope to the next pope. And he passed his power on to the next pope and the next pope. And that lineage continued all the way to the present day pope of the Catholic Church. And so the Roman Catholics say that the way you know you go into the real church is if it's the church the pope is in charge of. Okay? That's the true church. And so what that means is, according to their catechism, if a person is not baptized by the Catholic Church, if you don't take communion at the Catholic Church, if you don't confess your sins to a priest of the Catholic Church, you are not a true part of the church. And in the past few decades, the, the Catholic Church has made efforts to word this differently so it's not quite as abrasive. But if you, if, if you want to know what they really believe and what any religion would believe, I mean, go to, the, go to the Vatican and read the Catechism and see what it says. Go to the Vatican's website. Um, that's how I learned what it really said. But suffice it to say that nowhere does the New Testament teach that Peter was the first pope. 
or that Peter would hand down his apostolic authority to future popes in order to prove the true identity of the church. In fact, I would argue that the Bible as a whole disputes the idea that you can identify a true Christian based on what human institution he or she is a part of. After all, if that were true, then the people that would most certainly belong to God would be the Pharisees, right? I mean, not only did they belong to the Jewish race, they jumped through all the right hoops of their religion and society, but also they were the religious leaders. They were the pastors. Surely they, of all people, were members of the true church, but Jesus rebuked them. He said, no, that's not true. They were part of the right group on earth. They were leaders of the Jewish people, but didn't mean that did not mean they belonged to Jesus. In Matthew 23, 13, Jesus rebuked the Pharisees saying, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. If only being a Christian were as simple as having a membership pass, right? <laughs> that showed I'm part of this institution. I go to the right denomination. I go to the right local church. The Bible teaches, though, that you don't have to be united to an earthly institution in order to be saved from your sin. You need to be united to Jesus to be saved from your sin. And you do that by putting your faith in him alone. Now, on this topic of institutional unity, another question people will sometimes throw out is, well, if Jesus wants his people to be united then why are there thousands and thousands of denominations? And why are there thousands and thousands of different types of churches? And, and the person asking this might be implying that different types of churches is a sign of division, and the only way you can know that you're part of the true church is if you're part of a church that's one big institution, but that argument doesn't hold weight, as we already saw. But it's a very good question. If Jesus wants unity for his church, then is it wrong that there are so many different types of churches? Well, the short answer is that if lots of churches are being formed and divided because of foolish controversies and quarrels about things that don't really matter, then it's not a good thing that there's a lot of churches. And often, churches that begin with a bunch of disgruntled members from other churches won't last. There is, I think, though, a way in which the existence of different types of churches and denominations actually enhances unity and promotes the unity of brothers and sisters in Christ. Let me give you an example. Uh, even though I'm part of a Baptist church, it's very likely that I have the exact same core beliefs as a conservative Presbyterian. Okay? Now, however, in addition to our core beliefs about the Christian faith, we also have, we all have convictions about things of secondary importance. And so there are primary, there are issues of primary importance, there are issues of secondary importance. Primary importance are those things that all true Christians should believe. Secondary issues are those things that Christians can disagree about and still be brothers and sisters in Christ. So for instance, as a Baptist, I believe a person should be baptized after they've trusted in Jesus and are old enough to consent that they've trusted in Jesus. But my, my Presbyterian brothers and sisters, they have a different understanding of baptism, so they baptize infants and adults. However, 
neither Baptists nor Presbyterians believe that baptism saves a person from sin. And that's significant. Because there are people who believe that baptism is required for salvation, like the Roman Catholic Church. But as Presbyterian, I'm not going to say all Presbyterians, but I'm going to say a conservative Presbyterian who would believe what I believe, would believe that salvation is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Okay, we would agree on that point. So even though I disagree with the way that Presbyterians perform baptisms, can I still be united to them? Yes, of course. Okay, can I learn from their teachers? Of course. I've been greatly influenced by many Presbyterian uh, professors and pastors. As long as we agree on the issues of primary importance, like the deity of Christ, the existence of the Trinity, the reality of a literal hell and heaven, these types of things of primary existence will be united. Yesterday, the Babylon Bee published a funny and sarcastic article. It's an online, it's kind of like the onion except for Christians. Um, Let me read an excerpt to you because it fits with what we're talking about. It's called, How to Get Along with Christians from Other Denominations. Number one, immediately question their salvation. The best way to begin opening the lines of communication between you and a believer from a different background is to instantly and vocally doubt their justification before the Lord. This shows right off the bat that you care about their eternal soul. Number two, try to find extremely minor points of disagreement. Don't get hung up on major areas of agreement like justification by faith or the necessity of the atonement. Rather, hone in on the extremely unimportant things you disagree on, like your preferred pew color and the kind of shirt the pastor wears in their denomination. Three, punch them in the face. The Greeks had several different words for love, one of which was philia, literally translated as punching another believer in the face because you disagree. That's not true. As they're howling in pain on the floor, trying to hold their teeth in their mouth, you'll rest secure in the fact that you effectively showed them the love of Christ. And fourth, use air quotes every time you call them a a Christian. Believers from other denominations will know that you truly count them as brothers and sisters in Christ when you give a big sarcastic eye roll and exaggerated air quotes every time you use the word Christian to refer to them or their denomination. Like, hey Carl, I'm really glad you're a Christian too. Okay. Obviously, the writer is very sarcastic here. Those are ways we should not treat other Christians. But the fact that different churches and denominations exist does not mean that Christians are not united. Okay. Rather, diversity like this allows Christians to worship and fellowship in congregations without unneeded conflict and division. And this diversity allows us also to partner in ministry with other gospel-centered churches with whom we disagree over matters of secondary importance, but with whom we agree on matters of primary importance. And so the type of unity that Jesus prays for here in John 17 is not mere superficial institutional unity. Institutional unity cannot truly unite people. And the fourth thing that Christian unity is not is uniformity. Uniformity is simply being the same. Uniformity means thinking the exact same way, acting the exact same way, uh, looking the exact same way. And obviously the church is not made up of a uniform group of people. 
Look at us here today. We're, we're not all dressed the same way, are we? We are not all the same age and color and, and gender, are we? And you don't think the exact same way that your neighbor thinks. Your thinking has been shaped by your experiences, good and bad, and by your education and by your family and by your friends. And you don't act the exact same way that your neighbor acts, do you? You have a unique personality. You have unique talents. You have unique uh, interests. And the church is made up of many different people who look different, who think different, and who act different. And that's a really good thing. Because God made us that way. And he intends for us each to play a different part in his body. He did not make the body uniform. Otherwise, the body might just be a whole bunch of ears, right? And if we were just ears in this room, then we wouldn't be able to see or touch or smell or taste. God made different parts so that we could work together and each play the part he created us to play. And this image of a body with many different parts working together in harmony is what unity is all about. Unity happens when different people work together harmoniously with the same desire and purpose. And unity can be a very difficult thing to achieve and to maintain because what it requires is humility, which is not natural in us. It requires humility on everyone's part, which means that each of us tries to consider other people more significant than ourselves. Unity requires choosing not to quarrel over things that don't really matter in the big picture. Unity acknowledges that we're all going to have different preferences and different ways of doing things, but it requires telling yourself, you know what? Maybe my way of doing things isn't the only right way to do things. Unity requires intentionally talking to people on Sundays besides your closest friends. Unity allows you to share your opinions, which are good, your suggestions, it's good to share those, but it also requires that you don't throw a fit or make accusations when the group decides to go a different route than you suggested. Unity requires putting away suspicion, as we read in that earlier passage. It requires replacing suspicion with trust when you don't know all the facts. Unity requires saying, you know what? The members of this church, led by the Holy Spirit, voted to have these elders and these deacons lead the church this year. And we need to support them and let them lead unless we have strong reason to believe they're corrupt. Unity requires saying, you know what? As members of this church, led by the Holy Spirit together, we voted to have Dylan McFadden be our worship director. And since everyone has 101 different thoughts, including me, about how churches should worship together, you know what? Let's let Dylan do the job we hired him to do. Let's let him and his team make decisions about how best to lead us, unless we have a strong reason to believe that Dylan and his team are corrupt. See, unity recognizes that we all have different roles to play, different ministries in the church, and instead of discouraging one another, we should encourage one another and spur one another on with our words and actions in our respective callings and ministries. 
My friend Willie, right before I, the service, he came and asked me if I wanted to go shoot guns after the service. Now, I didn't grow up hunting. I didn't grow up around guns, okay? But he has used his talent, his passion for that to have quality time with men and fellowship. And I think that's awesome. And I want to encourage him and support him in that because that's something he can do that I can't do naturally. And this is what we want to do for each other. Um, pursuing unity like this is, is hard because it goes against every impulse in us. It goes against our flesh. It goes against much of the way we see things done in the world. And it goes against what Satan wants us to do, which is to divide. In our flesh, what we want to do is maintain our arrogance, we want to consider ourselves more important than others. We want to fight over things that just don't matter very much in the big picture. And this is why it's only by the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus' church can truly be united. Because God did not make us uniform. He made us different. And so if we're truly to be united as believers, it requires us to pursue having a servant's heart, a servant's mindset, and to be willing to sacrifice our own preferences for the peace of the church. So to review, we've identified four things that Christian unity is not. It's not disunity, it's not ungodly unity, it's not institutional unity, and it's not uniformity. Okay, next week we'll dive deeper into the kind of Christian unity that Jesus wants for us and that he prayed for. But if you're here today and you don't know today whether you and your maker Jesus are united, then believe in him, trust in him, talk to him, get real with God, confess that you don't have it all together. Confess your sins to him. Tell him you need him to save you if you believe that. Ask him to give you eternal life and he will because he lived a perfect life that you didn't live and I didn't live and he died on the cross and took your sin with him to the grave. And he rose from that grave victorious. And if you're nigh to him, you will too. And if you're here today and you're a Christian, then I just encourage you to think deeply this week about that Psalm 133. Think about the sweetness of Christian unity and how you can do your part to help maintain it in this church. That might mean putting things to death in your life that the Bible describes as divisive in 1 Timothy and Titus. This is reality, you guys. Life is short. So we need to encourage each other. We need to encourage our brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to pray for the leaders of the church. We need to pray for one another. And let's put our minor disputes aside. It's just not worth it. Let me pray for us. Lord God, thank you uh, for your word, Jesus. And thank you for praying for us, for unity, God, that we might be united to you through the blood shed on the cross, God, as we trust in you. Thank you, God, for giving us the Holy Spirit to empower us to break free from sin and from the power of sin in our lives so that we can go against the fleshly impulses in our bodies and say, you know what? I want to have the mindset of a servant. I don't want to be quarrelsome anymore. I don't want to fight others. I don't want to be a divisive person. I want to encourage others. I want to help others. I want to be like Jesus. I want to live out the unity of Christ in my life. 
And it's hard, God. It's hard, and we cannot do it without you. And so as we dive into this topic in the next few weeks, pray that you would just come onto our church. I thank you for this awesome body of people and the other like-minded churches in our community. We just pray, God, that you would be glorified by the way that we pursue unity and love one another, the way that we work together, and the way that we're seeking to bring glory to your name and to see many more people experience that same joy of your glory and your love for them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.